Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. So excited to be joined today by Dr. Greg Wells. Greg, how are you? Alex, good to see you, buddy. Great to be back and chatting and let's rock. Let's do this. Likewise, man. This has been a long time coming. We've had several courtside, underneath the court chats about the work that you do, the work that I do, the intersection of mind, body, and health and high performance. So I'm excited to dive into that with you. But I want to start with a really cool project. You're in the process of kind of finishing up and getting out there right now. You wrote a book called Powerhouse. Tell us about Powerhouse, the genesis of the idea, and sort of the foundational framework behind it. Yeah, sounds good. So early on in the pandemic, sort of early 2020, my first, my next book, which was at the time Rest or Focus Recharge, launched as every bookstore in the world closed. So that was, you know, difficult, but it was interesting that that really helped people deal with the burnout two years later. So now it's doing well, but at the time it was not. And then when I thought about burnout and where everyone is at right now, to some extent, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, had economic headwinds, the world is unstable. I was trying to figure out like, how do we help people with the next phase? Like what's next? And the next phase I think is that we all want to return to thriving. We all want to experience joy. We all want to reach our potential. We want to get, you know, as much as I think that the restrictions were the right thing to do, we can debate about that, but hopefully not. Uh, now we need to get back to community. We need to get back to what we do best. We need to get back to, you know, thriving. And so what do we need? We need energy. And if we think about where do we as humans get energy, as a physiologist, I always go deeper and deeper and deeper back into our cells. And we find that that's mitochondria. And mitochondria, which we all learned about in grade 10 bio, take the foods that we eat to create energy. So I thought that I would explore that a lot more. And once I started looking into mitochondria, I discovered that they're involved in cancer, heart disease, depression, Alzheimer's. When we train them, we get more of them. They get stronger. They get more effective. They produce more energy. So they are the common pathway for disease, but also then the common pathway for all human potential. And we can change them. We can make them better. So there's infinite possibility and it's all grounded in science. And that's kind of what I love to do. So that's what the new book Powerhouse is all about is optimizing your mitochondria. I love that this is the angle you've taken. I know just a week ago, I was on a walk nerding out thinking about asking you about mitochondria. So only the two of us might get into that in the middle of a walk. I know, imagine that. You're like, out for a while. I got to call Greg and talk about mitochondria. I'm like, oh my God, Alex <laughs> wants to talk about mitochondria. This is wicked. Like, you know, people who spend way too much time <laughs> thinking. Uh, and uh, But fortunately, we do it. We, we actually do things occasionally every once in a while too. But uh, yeah, right. it's pretty funny. We were texting about that. And that's what we're ending up talking about. It's pretty cool. Well, everyone needs to understand their mitochondria better, my, myself included. And so I want to back up a step because you, you've you got a really unique journey to get to this place of health and high performance that I imagine, you know, to the extent you feel comfortable, is probably tied to some of the work you've written about, right? Like I'm imagining as you're diving into the work about mitochondria, you're like, holy crap, like, oh, that's related to me. That's part of what I went through. Here are some of the things I'm, I was struggling with. So maybe tell us a bit about like your path to here. Um, and how it intersects with what you're doing now. Got it. So I was a competitive swimmer growing up. When I was 15, I was at a training camp in Florida, uh, broke my neck playing in the waves and went through three months of traction, neurosurgery, rehab, 
ultimately was able to compete again at the varsity level ish couple world cups, but you know, didn't really make the national team or anything like that. Most of my friends did, but that whole process of coming out of an injury to being healthy again, sparked my interest in the human body, then took a degree in kinesiology, went out, did some consulting after that for a while and ended up upgrading to a master's and ended up doing a doctorate and a couple postdocs uh, taught at the university for a while. And then actually landed after cycling across Africa in 2003, because I got my doctorate. Once you have a doctorate, no one will hire you. Didn't know that at the time, but it was really hard to get a job. So I had a few months off, went to Africa, cycled from Cairo to Cape Town. And when I got home, I was networking and bumped into uh, a gentleman at U of T, Scott Thomas. And he said, oh, you should go talk to Alan Coates at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. He's the cystic fibrosis uh, doctor lead for that, for that disease. Went and chatted to him. And he was like, yeah, we absolutely need someone to come in and lead the exercise medicine program. So I ended up working at Sick Kids and doing my postdoc there and ultimately been there ever since. And what we started to look at was how cystic fibrosis, a lung disease, it's a genetic disease, it gradually damages your lungs, the point where you uh, need a lung transplant or you, you don't survive. It's There is no cure at the moment. Uh, we started to look at how cystic fibrosis affects your, not just muscles, but your digestive tract and your muscles. And we discovered that CF, the gene for CF, damages your mitochondria. And the systematic inflammation that accompanies cystic fibrosis also damages your mitochondria. And we looked at how we could use magnetic resonance imaging to study your mitochondria without sticking needles in anyone or without putting radiation in any, anybody, because of course they're children, so we want to not hurt them. And we made some incredible discoveries about how we could improve muscle function in children with cystic fibrosis. We went on and did similar studies in kids with obesity, lupus, leukemia even, and I've been doing that type of research ever since in parallel also doing work with Olympic level athletes and international level expedition adventurers to train them. And what do you do when you're trying to prepare an athlete for competition physically, you're looking to optimize their mitochondria. So if I look back at it, almost everything I've ever done professionally has been based around trying to understand and optimize mitochondria. And I didn't really make all of those links until I was writing the introduction of the book. I'm like, oh yeah, I know everything I've ever done literally involves this little tiny structure inside of our body. It's pretty fascinating. And I, I appreciate you sharing because I think it sort of comes full circle, but it also shows just the depth of experience you have actually studying this in a real way and now doing the good work you're doing to put it out and make it accessible for everyone. So dive into the book a little bit for us. Talk to us about the way you've broken down how people can optimize their mitochondrial functioning. Maybe I'm making up a term here and what that looks like. And let's just unpack it from there. Sure. As I was writing it, I put the proposal together. It was like 10 different chapters. As And then I started to break it down and I'm, I'm writing and realized I need to make it way more simple, cut it in half. Like it got down to six chapters and I was like, still too complicated. I can't even remember what they are. And then cut it down even further and landed on four specific things that we can do to improve our mitochondrial functioning and mitochondrial health. First one is breath work, breathing. Explain that in a moment. Second thing is movement. Third one is energy. And the last one is thriving. So breathe, move, energize, thrive. We want to breathe better to make sure that we're getting oxygen into our bodies because oxygen is what the body uses to fuel your mitochondria so that they can break down the foods to you to create more energy. Movement sparks new mitochondria and strengthens the mitochondria that you have. Energy provides you with the fuel that you need to make sure that you have 
all of the little molecules that your mitochondria can then break down and use to create energy. And then, of course, you want to apply that to a thriving life. So that was the structure that we created, breathe, move, energize, thrive. I like to keep things super simple as much as I'm academic. And I like to dig into the research when it comes to actually applying it in our lives. The simpler we can make it, the more likely it is that someone's actually going to do something. So yeah, that's just what we tried to do. And it, it all began with uh, that one little breath and we go from there. Let's start there then. So so tell us a little bit about the mechanics of breath work. Like what, what does breath work actually mean? Because I think there's sometimes confusion about breath work versus meditation and mindfulness. And how does breath work help with this mitochondrial generation? Yeah, so let's consider breath just for a moment. And it is different than meditation and mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply bringing your attention into the present moment. Meditation is the practice of bringing your attention back into the present moment over and over and over again. And when you bring your attention back into the present moment, people often need an anchor to hold on to mentally to direct their focus, which is quite often breath. And that's great. It could also be a mantra. It can be a bunch of other things, but breath works beautifully. So what happens when we breathe? We contract the muscles in our rib cage, which expands our 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 rib cage, which pulls air into the lungs. We contract our diaphragm, which is the muscle that goes right through your middle, uh, sort of between your belly button and your your sternum, if you will. And it's a big, huge sheet of muscle that sits above your organs and below your mus- your lungs. That contracts, pulls down, pulls air in. So we get air into our lungs. That oxygen follows. And that oxygen goes out into the blood. As oxygen moves into the blood, we take the carbon dioxide, the waste products, the exhaust from our metabolism, that goes into your lungs and you exhale it out. So oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. And that's how we keep our body healthy from an acid base balance, from an oxygen carbon dioxide level. Plants, interestingly enough, do the exact opposite. They pull CO2 in and, and oxygen out. So it's a symbiotic relationship we have with nature all around us. It's a pretty interesting process because there's a whole bunch of things that control breathing. We have a drive to breathe. It's automatic. So if you fall asleep, you will breathe. Anyway, it's your resting drive. You have a wakefulness drive. As soon as you're awake, there's additional drive to breathing that happens. You have an exercise drive to breathe. When you move your body, it will increase the amount that that you breathe. And breathing is tightly regulated. We control it to keep our metabolism healthy. So it's very, very powerful. But the interesting thing is we can actually manipulate our breathing to achieve certain things mentally and physically as well. So as much as it's automatic, we can control it as well. It's a really interesting uh, feature of the body. Yeah, it's super cool. There was a study done fairly recently that showed that people who actually practiced breath work versus mindfulness had more control of their autonomic nervous system than folks who practice mindfulness. The mindfulness group had some other cognitive benefits that the breathwork group didn't have, but it is interesting to see how these are sort of operating on two distinct pathways here. And so then make the link from breath to mitochondria to thriving, right? How does this practice of breathwork lead to that you know, change in mitochondria we're looking for? And for people who are looking to get started with breathwork, like what do you recommend? Where should people begin? Got it. When we take a nice deep breath in, we do efficient, effective gas exchange, right? You want maximum oxygen into your blood, maximum CO2 out of the blood. And quite often during the day, we breathe in shallow breaths. We don't really totally ventilate our lungs very well. We don't have to because we're largely sitting at our desks. But if you want better cognition, if you want to think at a higher level, if you want to exercise at a higher level, then deliberate breath work every once in a while is incredible because it 
oxygenates your blood, gets more oxygen into your blood, therefore more oxygen to your brain, more oxygen to your muscles, more oxygen to your digestive tract, which then enables you to, in the brain, think better because you use oxygen to create your thoughts. It enables you to move better. You use oxygen to contract your muscles. Even enables you to digest your food better because we use oxygen to fuel all of your digestive tract and what it does to extract nutrients to get those out to our body where we need them. So breathwork and breathing enable us to do everything at a higher level. If you want to start practicing at that, there are a few very simple things that you can try. The first one is the birthday candle breath. A deep breath. Imagine that we're sitting around the, you know, your birthday. It's your birthday. And everyone's there, your family's there, and everyone's sitting around the table and they sing you happy birthday. And then they put a cake in front of you. There's a bunch of candles. You take a deep breath in. And that long exhale out. Now, the cool thing is, is that when we exhale, we calm, we send electrical signals to the stress centers of the brain that enable them to decrease their electrical activity levels and calm them down. If you do fast, hard exhales, it actually excites the brain. If we do long, slow exhales, it calms the brain down. So the birthday candle breath is an example of the relaxation one. An athlete exhaling hard as they hit the ball in tennis would be an example of activation, right? So those are sort of the two extremes. Most of us in our day-to-day lives just need to calm down. It's too stressful, too anxious, too nervous, right? There's too much tension in our lives, especially with all of the news that's happening these days another topic that we could dig into, but we want to dissipate that. We want to dissipate that tension. We want to dissipate that stress. And one of the ways we can use that is by deliberately practicing the birthday candle breath. Another easy tactic that we can try is box breathing, which is used by first responders and police and military operatives. And in order to stay calm, cool, and collected under pressure. And the way that box breathing works is we take four a breath that goes, we can do this together. If everyone listening wants to try it out, we'll go in for four seconds in two, three, four, hold for four seconds, two, three, four, out for four seconds, two, three, four, and hold for four seconds, two, three, four. You can practice that in a meeting. You can practice that sitting in traffic. You can practice that at the dinner table. If someone in your family is saying something that you disagree with, if it's a holiday and you're you're with your relatives and someone's talking politics, you can box breathe your way through that dinner. Uh, so it's an incredibly powerful tool that you can use to keep your emotions regulated under very difficult circumstances. Uh, and if you want to dig into it more, there's a very cool app that I've been using called Othership, O-T-H-E-R-S-H-I-P, Othership. I think that it's othership.us is where you can download the app. And it's a, a very cool app that does breath work to music. And it's phenomenal. So I've been using that in the mornings as well. Yeah, it is a super cool app, and we've both had the chance to meet some of those guys, and, and what yeah. they're doing is really cool. It makes breath work kind of fun. Okay, let's let's go to movement. You know, I think this is this is one that people are um, most people are interested in, are trying to optimize, or trying to think about the other benefits beyond just something I need to do to get it over with. Because I know people tell me I should be healthy and exercise. So, what are the benefits um, of regular movement, and how do you define movement as you're thinking about it in the book? Right. Normally, when it comes to exercise, probably for the last decade, I've been of the mind that 85% of the population doesn't get enough physical activity to prevent a chronic disease. So I'm like, just do anything. Go for a walk. 15 minutes is awesome. Three minutes is okay. 
anything helps. Steps are the key. And they are. Like, the more you get, the better. All of the above is true. But I feel like right now we need to do something a little bit different. I feel like actually right now we've got to get back to training. So there's physical activity, general habitual physical activity. Keeps you healthy, extends your lifespan. The more steps you take, the better. Broadly speaking, right? Above 15,000 a day, pump the brakes, you're good. But like just more steps is good. General habitual physical activity, motion is lotion, all amazing for us. Doesn't matter what you do, it's all great. Gardening, housework, walking, jogging, like all of it is incredible. Exercise is something where you are imposing some stress on the body. So let's say we're lifting weights, we're going for a run, you're breaking a sweat, basically. Training is doing that repeatedly over time, consistently exercising every day or like five times a week to be able to run a 5k, a 10k, a half marathon or something like that. You're into CrossFit, getting fitter, doing yoga, all of it counts, all of it's good. And right now I feel like we actually have to get back to training because there's so much stress, there's so much anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, significant challenges around our physical fitness. And the answer to all of that is just simply move more. So the cool thing is that when we we exercise consistently, we spark the growth of new mitochondria. Whenever you work out, you produce lactic acid, you produce carbon dioxide, you, you produce hydrogen ions. Those are all stimuli to your DNA to grow new mitochondria. You also, by the way, have your DNA for your mitochondria. You inherit that from your mom. It actually comes down through the matrilineal line. It can actually all be traced back to about 200,000 years ago to one woman. So there's one woman from whom all humans on the planet Earth today have their mitochondria, which is commonly referred to in the research as mitochondrial eve so when we exercise we get more mitochondria the other really cool thing is that in your mitochondria you have cristae or folds where the processes happen that break down food to create energy and you get more folds in your mitochondria so like more folds in your brain right where all the action kind of takes place in the white matter the other cool thing is you get more enzymes these are the enzymes that break down the foods that you eat to create energy so not only do you get more mitochondria the mitochondria themselves become more dense and the incredible enzymes that are in them that do the work, they get more of those too. So we get this incredible positive adaptation inside of our mitochondria, inside of our bodies, inside of our muscles, inside of our brains, inside of our neurons when we exercise consistently. And I think we need a lot more of that right now because there's so many challenges mentally and physically for everybody listening. Yeah, I think it's, I like how you broke down training versus exercise versus physical activity. And I wonder if there's something to, kind of the deliberate intention of training, like the pushing yourself a little further than you might. Um, I know, you know, I'm thinking about it from sort of an overall metabolic health perspective. I'm thinking about the anxiety and depression and things you're mentioning. And we know there's a really strong link between metabolic health and what we typically would call, you know, psychiatric disorders. And so there is, to me, when I think about exercise, like one of the cool things is you can train yourself to take on bigger challenges. You can build self-efficacy, right? There's all these mental processes also happening that run in tandem with the physical things that you're describing. But I would, as I'm thinking about it and hearing you talk about it, it would make sense to me that those would be even stronger in what I would consider like deliberate intentional training than it would be kind of a casual daily movement. I think both are valuable. Yeah, both are valuable. We know that if we're just generally physically active, your health is going to improve. Your risk of every chronic disease is going to go down. We also know that it improves outcomes from a mental health perspective as well. But you're right. There are some specific benefits to training. 
going a little bit further than you might be comfortable with, a little bit longer than you might be comfortable with, a little bit more intense than you might be comfortable with. And it's that stress that stimulates the growth. If we go longer distances, we grow more mitochondria. If we go more intensity, we get more, more enzymes. So what I recommend to people to think about is that there's many different types of exercise. All of them have benefit. Yoga improves flexibility and mobility. Walking improves general cardiovascular fitness. Running improves bones as well as your muscles and builds that capacity for your cardiovascular heart and lung function as well. Strength training builds muscle, especially type two muscle fibers that you use to be stronger and do activities of daily living. Those help you to have a longer life. They extend your lifespan. They also extend how long you live without a chronic disease, your health span as well. So we recommend a variety of things, gardening, housework, intervals, spin classes, yoga, go for a walk. Not that you have to do them all every day, but you want to be doing a lot of them throughout your life. There may be phases of life where you're into marathon training or running. That's great. But then there might be a time where you're into recovery, regeneration, and yoga. They all work. They all have benefits. They're all incredibly good for us. And it's important to realize that they're all different as well. They all have different effects, many of which are, are beneficial. So sprinkle a little bit of physical activity throughout the course of the day. Find the things that you love to do. Do them a little bit more than you might normally do. Bump up the intensity a little bit more. And I think you'll see some really incredible outcomes. I love that. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the kind of compare and contrast too, because I think so often people have sort of like, I think this is popular science now, but people have sort of like over-indexed on like high intensity interval training is the way to go, or, oh, you've got to do steady state cardio, or it's only, you know, this type of lifting or Olympic lifts only. And it's like, yeah, sure, maybe, but maybe it's all ultimately like no one cares when you're you know, 75, how much you deadlifted when you were 23, you know, like it's all about extending your own longevity and having a healthier life. But we, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole because we've got a couple other buckets to fill here. And then you're kind of going through something unique right now, I think, in managing your own performance and applying all these principles. And so I want to leave time for that too. So tell us about the energy bucket. It, it feels admittedly kind of like nebulous and vague to me, but I know you've got some science to support what you're you're talking about. So tell me about energy. Got it. So on the energize side of things, what we're looking to do is help the body stimulate positive adaptation. So if we, when we adapt positively, good things happen. So how do we do that? When it comes to stress, physical, mental, emotional, that triggers a cascade of things that happen inside the body that if you rest afterwards, lead to positive adaptation. If you don't rest, it leads to overwhelm and burnout mentally, physically, and emotionally. So stress plus rest equals growth. Great equation written up by Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus in their book, Peak Performance. So that's a, definitely an approach that I love to take. But let's think about that stress a little bit. When it comes to improving our energy, when it comes to stress, the idea is that a little is good, a lot is not. And that leads us into the idea of hormesis. Hormesis is a physiological term that talks about a little bit of stress stimulates positive adaptation. And around hormesis, what I've been playing with a lot is hot and cold. Cold water immersion to calm the nervous system down and help that sympathetic to parasympathetic shift, getting out of stress and into recovery and regeneration. I was in Lake Ontario in Toronto, where we live. It's February. We're in Canada. It's cold. The lake is very cold. I was in for about 10 minutes this morning. 
And about three minutes in, I really felt this switch go off and I just relaxed and was able just to literally chill out. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum is heat, saunas, hot baths, hot showers. And that heat also has a significant, is a significant stressor, but it's more of a stressor for your cardiovascular system. So I view a little bit of cold as positive for stimulating adaptation in our nervous system. And I view heat as a positive adaptation for our cardiovascular system. Both have been shown to be tremendously beneficial. None is fine. You'll be okay. A little bit is really good, but a lot is not. If you stay in a cold lake for too long, you get hypothermia, you die. If you stay in a hot sauna for too long, you get dehydrated and you die, right? So a little bit is good. A lot is not. The same is true for salt. The same is true for stress. The same is true for all sorts of different sleep is like all of it. Moderation and balance is the key here. And I think that back to what you said, just before we jumped into this new topic, everyone loves to go to the extremes, right? Extremes gets the clicks. Extremes gets the group of people that are like, actually, I'm only going to eat meat or I'm only going to do CrossFit or I'm only like, it's not like that in reality. The reality is humans benefit from a variety. We benefit a lot from the principle of hormesis, which is a little bit as good, a lot is not. And when we apply those principles, it allows us to control our stress and it allows us to adapt. And when we positively adapt our nervous system, we positively adapt our muscles through exercise. We positively adapt our cardiovascular system, maybe through heat or, or also exercise. Incredible things happen. And we end up in a place of better energy, less tension. And as a result, we can live a much, much better life, I think. I love that. And I love, thank you for introducing the principle of hormesis. I know we've talked about it a little bit. It was one of my favorite things to watch you talk about at a recent speech I saw you give, because I think it's just, it's a simple principle, but it's science backed. It's something for people to think about, especially in a world where, you know, to your point, we go to extremes, but we also have this sort of built in principle that more is always better. And more is not always better. More exercise is not always better. More heat is not always better. I think you know, I can't even fathom getting in the lake at this point. So good for you. But we, we can go down that path another time. So talk about you all one day, buddy. It's gonna be fun. We're doing Oh, gonna, goodness. I love it. I, I appreciate your optimism happen. for that one. Let's do it. Um, so talk about thriving, then we've got this energized, we've got down, you've got all sorts of ways that you can tap into that bucket there. Let's hit on thriving, because I want to help people put it all together in a formula when you're done. Yes, this is way out. So this is no longer Greg talking as a physiologist. This is just Greg trying to figure out how to lead a great life, right? So the breathwork stuff, did my PhD on that, couple postdocs on that, got that locked down, exercise, exercise physiologist as well, coached Olympic athletes to, you know, like we've done that for sure. Hormesis is just physiology, got that locked down. Now we're moving into how do we apply this and just live a great life? I want to experience more joy. I want to be happier. I want to have fun. I want to do cool things with cool people. So we explore when it comes to thriving ideas like gratitude, which according to the research shows improvements in mental health, but also physical health, like cardiovascular system improvements when we practice gratitude, like how does that work? But like, it's documented over and over and over again, multiple different labs, multiple different studies. When we practice gratitude, your cardiovascular system gets better. We can talk about things like altruism, doing things for others with absolutely no expectation whatsoever of anything in return, just doing good things for people. And that has tremendous benefits as well, which can be measured physiologically. Then we want to talk about people. Who are the people that elevate you? Who is your dream team? Who are the, the people that you want to spend more time with? 
right? You and I have been hanging out more and more and more over the last couple of years, you know, going to the basketball games on the stands, under the stands, on the, like just breaking down and we're learning from each other. Right. So that, that elevates both of us. It's incredible. Then we have places. Where can we go that we love our life that elevate us? And that could be like a room in your house. It could be a park, right? It could be coaching your kid's soccer game. For me, it's the mountains. I love being in the mountains. I love skiing and cycling and climbing and all those sorts of things. And then the final piece of the puzzle is making sure that we're really clear on our pursuits. What is it that we love to do? And deliberately allocating more time to all of that. So practicing gratitude for what we have, practicing altruism, doing good things for other people, spending more time with the people that we love, going to cool places that elevate us, that make us happy and excited, and practicing the pursuits that where we can reach our true human potential. And that's the sort of life optimization piece, right? Like that's sort of figuring out how to hack your life on a day-to-day basis. It's not easy because we get busy. But I think with practice and deliberate attention, that that can absolutely unlock the future for us, enabling us to live a really cool life that when we look back on it, we're like, yeah, I know I did some cool things with cool people and I had a lot of fun. And and that's what I hope for everybody. So we just look back on our lives and be like, yeah, no, that was fun. Like I did good things. I helped people. And that's what I'm trying to figure out how to do now as I as I enter my 50s, right? So and helping other people to do it hopefully a lot earlier than I figured it out. So, yeah. I think it's it's awesome how you've put it together. And I know you said you're not quite, you know, you're kind of shooting at it sort of like ethereally, but you, you've actually picked some pretty science-backed things that are also linked to metabolic health, right? And I'm sure you know that, but for people listening, like we know that humans have evolved the capacity to regulate each other's nervous system and their energy efficiency. And so doing something kind for someone else is a way to restore a bit of your energy, right? Spending time outdoors is a way to restore your energy. Like you've picked these really cool principles that do cut across science. And I think the one that I love most right now is kind of pursuing what you are working toward your larger purpose. There's some really, really good data that's all pointing to the idea that like the the best predictor of your overall well-being is essentially pursuing self-concordant goals, right? The idea that this goal matters to you, it's aligned with your values and your core purpose, and you're making real progress. If you're not seeing that, chances are you feel kind of crappy. If you are seeing that, chances are you feel capable, autonomous, motivated, engaged in your life, happy, you're doing things with cool people, like all the, the things that you're you're pointing to, which I love. So let's get tactical for a few minutes, if that's okay with you. Because before we jumped on, you were telling me about a bit of a sprint you're going through right now. You're, I think it was like six planes in three days and four cities kind of thing. I mean, you're, you're grinding right now to, to use the the term that we love around sports, right? But you're also managing to do it at a really high level. And I think this kind of sustaining excellence, sustaining performance over time is really difficult. And you're sort of putting, putting your work into your own practice, right? You're, you're, uh, you're drinking your own Kool-Aid, so to speak. So Tell us what a day in the life of Greg Wells looks like to sustain that performance over the course of these pretty intense things that you're doing. So for context right now, I'm really focused on public speaking, getting this book out into the world and focusing on our app that we're developing, the Vivio app. And I'm really trying to let go of some of the corporate consulting work that we were doing before, just because I want to focus on one specific area and truly elevate my performance and be 
absolutely world-class at the thing that I think I'm really good at, which is public speaking. Just so happens that most people are scared to death of public speaking. So it's a great job to have, right? Like it's my competition is less there. The great thing about public speaking is I love it. It's a blast. It's super cool. But the challenge is, is that if you're really good at it, you end up flying all over the place. So last week I was in, well, in the last few weeks, I've been in many, many different cities on many different airplanes at all times of day or night. And it's been absolutely incredible. I do have a little bit of a cold, which you can probably detect from my voice right now. As a result, probably picked it up on a plane last week, but hacking myself to get over it really, really quickly. And so what I'm trying to do right now is apply all of the ideas that we just spoke about to make sure that I'm as good as I can possibly be while also running my lab at SickKids, being a good dad, you know, all of the things that come along with just like uh, uh, the life that I've, that I've created. So what I thought I would do is just sort of walk you through how I'm doing things on a, on a daily basis, just to show the level of complexity that I've, that I've built out. But again, simplicity, because I do this every single day. First thing in the morning, wake up 5am, get out of bed, go wash and all that stuff, drink water. Next thing that happens is some sort of a workout. On Monday and Thursday, it's weights. On Tuesday, I take my daughter to morning workout. She's a swimmer. While she's in the pool, I run or lift. So right first thing in the morning, no matter where we are, home or if I'm out, got to do a workout first thing. Then one scoop of Living Fuel Superberry Ultimate. You can check it out, livingfuel.com. Superberry Ultimate is what I use. It's got every vitamin and mineral in it. That way I know that I've got everything I need every single morning. Drink some coffee at that point. Love coffee. It's my vice. Can't get rid of it. It is what it is. And six omega-3 capsules. So I've done my genetics and I know that my omega-3 fatty acids tend to be low. So I've got to take some exogenously. So wake up, drink water, do a workout, living fuel, omega-3s, coffee, then some sort of breakfast. Actually, I'm getting breakfast from a company called Athlete's Kitchen. They deliver it, grab it and go because I'm on the road super healthy, greens, protein, all that stuff. It's awesome. Then try to do about 90 minutes of deep work. I love to do alpha and theta work. So that's my learning creativity stuff. First thing in the morning, halfway through the morning, recharge, hydrate, then do a block about 90 minutes of deep work in terms of focus, beta execution type stuff. Another break, recharge, hydrate, grab lunch. Then right after lunch, do sauna, steam, and cold. So some sort of contrast between an infrared sauna and jumping in the lake if I'm working at home or if I'm out at the office, go down to the gym, jump in the sauna, jump in a cold shower, right? Some sort of alternating heat and cold to spark me for the afternoon. One more block of work in the afternoon, whatever I have to do, pick up the kids. And then in the evening, alternate either some sort of interval training and some sort of yoga work. Dinner with the family, parasympathetic sundown, breath work at night, bath, read, bed, all that sort of stuff. So it's pretty complicated, but it works really, really well. When I stick to it, things go awesome. When I deviate from it, it gets challenging. I don't get 10 out of 10 every day, but if I'm 7, 8, 9 out of 10, I'm 10 I tend to have a really great day. I love what you've done here because you've essentially built a high-performance routine for yourself. Obviously, you've got a ton of training experience, knowledge, applying all of this to yourself. And so the level of complexity that you've, you are engaging in, you've made it sound simple, um, but for those of us who are not starting at the level of Greg Wells, like where where do we begin, right? What would you recommend would be two to three things I should put into my daily routine beginning tomorrow based on what you know and what's been working? What I would do right away would be to try to figure out how can you alternate world-class work with deep recovery and regeneration? 
so many of us just like pedal to the metal all day long. We get tired, we get burned out, we get fatigued. How can you install periods of recovery during the day? Meditation, breath work, go for a walk at lunch, read a book at night. That will completely 10x your abilities in everything else that you do. Once you've got that dialed in, some periodic recovery throughout the course of the day, the next thing I'd think about is what's my morning look like? What's my sort of takeoff? What's my fueling practice, right? Like, how can I set myself up to have a great day? Dial in your morning. You don't have to do six things like I'm doing. One thing will work. The morning affirmation, a healthy breakfast, drinking some water. All of it's awesome. Once that's dialed in, I would be very careful about thinking through my work day and figuring out when am I awesome? Put your most important work there. When do I struggle? And put your more less important work. So for me, for example, what's important is creative thinking, writing books, coming up with new ways of explaining science to people. What's less important? I mean, it's important, but like invoicing, email, all that sort of administrative stuff for me, Greg, is easier for me to do when I'm tired. So that goes in the afternoon. So once you've got your days a little bit more optimized, then the evening is magic because when we fix our evenings, that's when we connect to family. That's when we can recover and regenerate. That's when we can do stuff that makes us happy and thrive. And so that might be something like making sure that like if I'm in Toronto, I read to Adam at night, make absolutely sure that if I'm in Toronto, I'm at home in time to read to my eight-year-old before he falls asleep. It's incredibly powerful. Sometimes it means I got to leave the office early because I, I have a tendency to have the ch chance to work late sometimes. But it gets me out of the office, gets me home, have a little bit of food, read to Adam. He goes to sleep. Then I can connect and chat to Judith. We're both busy. So we've got to make sure that we carve out that time and we recover, regenerate. So that's the process that I went through to get to this. I actually redo my day plan about every three months because things change. The kids' activities change. My work changes, like whatever. So I feel like there's a fall, winter, spring, and summer plan that I tend to put together. But I do take a lot of time to deliberately figure out what I want to be doing because I don't want to be shooting arrows and then walking over and painting the, the bullseye, right? I want to draw the bullseye and then shoot the arrows when it comes to my days. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do and how I might approach it if I was doing this from scratch. I appreciate it. There's so many good ideas in here. I mean, one, I like the simplicity of just picking one thing, right? And starting somewhere. I like the holistic nature of what you've described, right? There's, there is every single principle from your book is a part of some of the recommendations that you made. And if you picked one from each bucket, right, if you did a breath, energize, perform, move, thrive, you would have like a pretty good routine built for yourself that would be putting you on the path to this kind of sustaining excellence, which I love. So thank you for breaking that down. I also love the idea of mixing it up or at least revisiting it every three months. I think so often when we're trying to change behavior or move into more of a high performance pattern, we kind of like find what works, and you should sort of stick with that as long as you can, but chances are after 90 days, 120 days, whatever, you're kind of missing the mark. Something feels routine. You're not engaging with the same intentionality. So this variety is sort of like the spice of learning, essentially, and you're sort of constantly keeping yourself updated and moving forward. I love that. Greg, we've got a couple minutes left, so I want to ask you one tough question, I think, and then we'll wrap up. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do it. If you were going to give people one thing to take away from the new book what is the one thing you want nobody to forget the one thing i'd love for people to walk away from with the new book 
is that by taking care of yourself, you can better serve others. Let's face it. If you're, if you're reading a self-help book, you're working on yourself and you're working on yourself probably to make sure that you can do better things in the world. And quite often we prioritize everybody else before we prioritize ourselves. Yet by prioritizing ourselves, by working on your own health, your own well-being, your own pursuits, your own mission, your own purpose, and getting clear on that and elevating your energy, you'll be better for the world. This is my, I'm, I'm brutal. Like I'm really working hard on that. What I just described, right? Like that, it is so easy for me just to keep going because I love what I do. It's so fun. But when I work out, I'm even better. When I do breath work, I'm way calmer. When I meditate, I'm much more regulated. So even though it's taking time away from producing and shipping, whatever it is, it elevates everything else that you do. So I'd love for you, everyone, to take care of yourself first. And it's not selfish. It's self-full, right? It's like by taking care of yourself, you're going to be better for you, better for your loved ones, better for your family, better for your friends, and better for your community and whoever you're working with, your colleagues as well, right? So that's the key message. That's I hope that everyone takes away from it and what we can all start with. I love it. That's awesome. Thank you. I, and I, I'm a huge proponent in what you're describing, right? The more you can take care of yourself, the better you're going to be for everyone else. And ultimately, that's that's what it's all about. Where can people find you, follow you, learn more about your work? I know you've got a good LinkedIn presence, but where where else can people learn more about you? Sure. Uh, check out my website, drgregwells.com. All my social media are there. They're all at Dr. Greg Wells. Uh, we have a podcast. Uh, the book is called Powerhouse. Get it wherever you get books. It comes out April 7th, 2023. Just go to my website. There'll be a link there. Uh, and if anyone wants to check out um, our app, Vivio, we'd be honored to have you as part of that community as well. And that's at viiv.io. So Vivio, and that's where uh, where you can check that out. You get 1% tips every single day. And uh, we're pretty proud of it. So that's where we're, we're driving everyone to, but the book would be great as well. Dr. Greg Wells, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Alex, great to see you, buddy. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.